turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, friends, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show all about taking a deep dive into the mess and the gray, the stuff that doesn't have easy answers, the stuff that often doesn't tie up with a nice pretty bow, because that's where most of us live most of the time, but also hopefully to bring some good to the world. It seems like more and more people are kind of having shouting matches from their vantage points, and we want to hopefully find some common ground, but also bring some good into the world through conversation and dialogue, and there's a couple of ways you can do that. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. All the previous shows are there. Plus, we are podcasted. I'm told that sometimes people will listen to us at twice the speed on the podcast, which I I already have a squeaky voice. (laughs) I can't imagine what that's like at twice the speed. It is wild, man. I've I've listened to podcasts. I've tried to before because people could say you can be so much more efficient that way. And it's like I can't handle it. It's too quick. Maybe you and I will just talk slowly <laughs> make people think their device is like yes. slowing down or something <laughs> the t- the tape is struggling it's wild though well we okay so we've talked uh, a number of different times about uh specifically what's happening in the church uh, of chicagoland yes. and we're talking more specifically about uh, willow and harvest and some of the things that we've had the unfortunate job of um talking about to be honest stuff that breaks our hearts just as pastors as christ followers and uh We've heard from a number of you, too, that there's, there, it's a really complicated um, scenario, mm-hmm. no matter how you cut it, no matter how you slice it. Um, so just want to say at the onset, our hearts grieve. Our hearts grieve that um, there's so much damage that's been done in the name of Jesus. So yeah. many people are carrying wounds that we may not ever know anything about at all. And uh, as we mentioned a little bit earlier in the week, um, uh, there was an investigation that was completed yes. by the uh, IAG and uh, concluded that essentially we, we believe— the people who made these accusations, we believe that um, Bill needs to seek some kind of uh, professional help, and we affirmed that and, mm-hmm. um, and and hope that that is a pathway to healing both for Bill and for Willow Creek. And uh, knowing a number of people that you know call Willow home, it seems like the trajectory there actually is one of like health and healing and yeah. restoration. But uh, Nancy Beach, who has been pretty um, intricately involved in this story, uh, posted a pretty uh, pretty lengthy blog at uh, at Pathios. Um, about the investigation, uh, about kind of her responses to the investigation, and I mean, I highly recommend checking it out. Um, I think I think Nancy Beach is brilliant. Yep, she's well read. She's well written. She's it's just voiced really well, and she kind of categorizes it by what she thinks the uh, the report got right, what it got wrong, what uh, confused her, but then the last category is what she believes uh, was missing, what yeah. she what she had hoped to see in this report that uh, wasn't there, and and I. 
that's, I think, the real like kind of pastoral gold of this article is what she felt was missing. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, and it's important to note that Nancy Beach has been kind of at the at the middle of Willow since day one. Yeah. Right. So yeah. she is not like just some critic on the outside or something. Yeah, right. And she made a huge step to kind of. Uh, help these accusations come to light. So she, my point being, she's very invested in yep. this. Uh, and when I read what she says is missing, I, I think uh, it is what's missing. I, I actually read these as she feels like this is what's missing overall in the church culture, mm. like what she wants to see from the church. Because, mm. you know, an outside advisory group can only go in, can only dive in so deep on right. a report. Right. Right. And so she is saying these are missing from the report, but my guess is deep down in her heart, she feels like these are missing hmm. just from the church reaction overall. And the first thing she says is outrage, that the report sounds dispassionate and somewhat clinical. I realize hmm. they need to be professional and objective, but if I'm honest, I long for a sense of outrage. Yeah. So I, I, what I, I don't know what you hear there. What I hear her saying is, like, when is, when is the church as a whole just going to get mad about what happened? Right. Not try to move on, not try to make things right, but when are we going to get mad? And that goes into her second one, she says, and that's lament. Yeah. Tracing all the way back to last March, she says, I'm wondering where the lament of God's people has been. And mm. I, it's really interesting. Like, those two emotions taken side by side really give you a feel for not just where she's at, but where she thinks— a healthy reaction from the church or, or what would produce good fruit. She's saying yeah. one outrage, like this is just wrong. This yep. is sinful. And two lament. I'm so sad and broken that this happened well, in the I, church. Yeah. And I think outrage and lament often kind of go hand in hand they too. Do. And she kind of yeah. goes on to say, Hey, let's not forget like people's lives were really, really uh, messed up. Like yeah. jobs were lost. Like there, there are very real consequences that to be honest, you and I probably have no idea the, the weight and depth of, yep. of how people were affected. And I think outrage and lament are absolutely necessary responses. Yep. And I think sometimes, you know, kind of to your point, outrage in the church can feel like this thing that we're not supposed to feel, that yes. we're not supposed to have. And she's saying, man, how, how can we not? Third thing that she said that she uh, felt was missing was greater transparency. What is missing in the report are the details. Why do details matter? Because there are still people wondering if this could possibly be an overreaction. If the women are fully telling the truth, if, if Bill's abuse of power was really just strong leadership. Yeah. I'm aware of specific evidence and many episodes and stories that were told, um, none of which come out in that report. And so she's saying, really, essentially, it's it's still too vague. Like, yes. we've, we've allowed things to be uh, ambiguous in a way that she believes is, uh, is not helpful. And I think she's saying, if you're going to root out sin, if you're going to get past sin, if you're going to deal with things, the more specificity that can be given, not to the church as a whole necessarily, but... Uh, to like, you know, it's not just, oh, there was a lack of control. No, there was very specific things that went on. And then along those lines, she says, where are the specific apologies? Right. At what point are you going to apologize to the actual women or to the actual people who stood up for the women and were called liars? At yeah, what point right. are they going to be specifically told, we're sorry? Yeah. <laughs> we are sorry. And and that's a big one. That's a, that's That one's powerful. That, that one's coming from personal pain for her. Yeah. Well, and she says, too, in an effort to move on, I believe it's, you know, some of the specifics are missing. And yep. I think that is part of the goal. Like, all right, let's just get to healing. Let's get to, all right, let's put this behind us, which I can I can understand that sentiment. But I think she's spot on that the people, specifically the ones um, who are sp- spoken ill of publicly in a public forum, uh, a public apology, a specific yep. apology is, is really, really necessary. She says another thing was missing were reparations. The uh, IAG recommended that the church consider granting financial assistance for counseling or other resources for those who are directly harmed. 
And I agree, and I, what I think is still missing, though, would be the scope of this assistance. Mm. Specifically, I believe the church should consider making major compensation, and then she begins to list a number of the people who lost income uh, or incurred financial repercussions because of the behaviors of Hybels, even though the current church leaders had nothing to do with it. Um, I call them to do the right thing for these victims or any other deemed worthy of financial help, which I yeah. think is a really important call to action. And then the last thing, um, which you and I have, have both kind of alluded to, what she believes is missing is uh, repentance from Bill Hybels. Mm. Finally, perhaps the biggest thing missing are any words from Bill himself, words of genuine, full, complete repentance. His silence further hurts all the victims, and yes. I pray regularly that God will do a work in his heart and spirit, which has been our prayer as well, that he will pursue truth, counseling, confession, and forgiveness. That, that gets to the the question of can Willow Creek ever really heal unless they hear from Bill Hybels? Can mm. Harvest Bible Chapel ever really heal unless they eventually hear from James McDonald. Because mm. we always say the church is bigger than these leaders, but these leaders started the church, and they're the ones that caused the pain. Right. And so I think the people of Willow and the people of Harvest and across the board are going to have to wrestle with that. Like, if Bill Hybels never says another word, wow. can Willow heal and move on from this? And That's good. And so on and so forth. And she's saying, we need to hear from him. I'm praying that he'll come up one day and just say, I'm really sorry for what I did. Well, and I love that she says, too, it's not only that we need to hear from him, but I genuinely hope that his heart heals as yes. well. That, like, part of this confession, part of owning up to it, this is, this is like, the first step mm-hmm. to true repentance, to true healing. It's that contrition of saying, man, I, I really did mess up. And that, that is our hope and prayer, too. Again, uh, to say it for the thousandth time, yes. our heart grieves when we see this stuff happen, and we know this won't be the last time, but to take steps towards protecting Believing, standing up for the marginalized and the oppressed, and that's that's the kind of that's the kind of leaders that you and I want to be. That's what we want the church to be. And uh, man, I, I really, really am praying daily for the healing of uh, all the people that are involved. Well, it's a tough conversation, man. Yes. And uh, coming up next, the, you shared an article with a pretty interesting headline that I think is going to lead to a really fascinating discussion. The headline simply reads: uh, "To reach unsaved Christians mm. first." Help them get lost. (laughs) What does that even mean? So we're going to talk about that next on The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, and I'm trying really hard not to sound tired right now. (laughs) Did it work? Oh, if you all could see Ian right now. If you could see him, he's pumping coffee straight into his arm. I'm on the struggle bus, man. It is real. Give us the most consecutive hours or minutes of sleep uh, in the last week, what you're, is it? You're yeah. assuming that there's been any. That's, yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> well, why I threw in minutes. <laughs> yeah, minutes, moments, minutes. seconds. Again, just to make it really clear, my wife is the hero, yes, right? She, yes. Whatever little sleep I'm getting, she's getting less, just period. So I feel like such a hypocrite complaining about being tired yeah. at all. But, you know, either way. We're here for you. I, th- I appreciate that. I mean, she doesn't have a radio show to complain about. It, so. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Maybe we should have her call in. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can join us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Also, you can go to 1160hope.com, and all the previous shows are podcasted. I don't sound nearly as tired in all of those ones, nope. so feel free to skip on over there if you need. Uh, but we mentioned earlier, though, I want to talk about this article, Brian, you shared. Yeah. And the headline simply reads, To Reach Unsaved Christians First help them get lost. Yeah, it's a fascinating article. It's at the christianitytoday.com. You can find it there from their February um articles. And the point is this, it's getting at cultural Christianity. Uh and the author uh tells a story of somebody who was taking a church in Alabama in the Bible Belt hmm. and uh he said this. He said, "Whatever, the Bible Belt is the most difficult place in America to pastor 
a local church. Hmm. He says, I was stunned. He must have sensed my confusion because he explained further. And then he goes on to say, in blatantly um, non-Christian areas, right? Like, like think about the coasts, really, right? California or where I grew up out east, kind of all the way up into New England. Like, they, they value the fact that they are not Christian, <laughs> that they are uh, hmm. they, that they are not People will own the fact that they don't believe in Jesus much more than in the Midwest and certainly much more in the Bible Belt. Like you I think went, so? I do. Oh. I visited a buddy uh, down in – another pastor down in Tennessee a year or two ago, uh, and there were – he took us down this one road. He called it the buckle of the Bible Belt Yeah, in Nashville, Tennessee, or in, the, in Nashville suburbs. And he drove us down one five-mile stretch of road, and I believe there were five churches of over 1,000 people. No kidding. I mean, it was one after the other. And he said, he, he explained it to us this way. He said, everybody here at least claims Christianity, hmm. right? And that's what this article's getting at. It's saying uh, there are—and uh, this is a difficult topic to wrestle with because what the, what the author is basically saying is there are— if 70% of the people in our country claim to be Christian, this author is saying 70% of them are not actually Christians, hmm. that it might be 30%, 40%, and the other are cultural Christians. And that's what you don't find more like out east or even probably on the West Coast, but you find either out here or in the Bible Belt, this cultural Christianity. The people are like, I'm a Christian. That's what they that's what they check on the forms and stuff. Uh but but they're really just kind of following the rules of Christianity. It's still, you know, advantageous to be part of a church. Hmm. And so the point of this article is this. You've got to break down people's cultural Christianity before you can then share Jesus with them because they don't have any concept of their need for Jesus. Hmm. What makes this uncomfortable, uh, I think, that we need to wrestle with is, like, you're kind of making a judgment on people and going— yeah, you don't really know the gospel. You don't really know Jesus. I need to kind of break you down before building you back up. Uh, but he's saying, you know, to go into these places where people are like, no, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, and you have doubts about it, he's saying is a harder mission field than going into a place where people are like, no, I don't believe any of this, and kind of starting from that standpoint yeah. where you where you each know where you stand. Well, I think you're right to caution against sort of this, like, I know that your faith isn't legitimate, so let me yep. go ahead and dismantle like. Who among us hasn't seen someone on Facebook say, well, if you actually read the Bible, yes. and I'm like, I think the guy you're arguing with has read the Bible. Yep. Like it is, yep. it, it is, it sometimes can be um, quite the assumption that somebody, oh, because their theology, their doctrine or their politics don't look like yours, that they don't really get the gospel. Yep. They're not really following Jesus. They're sort of this, you know, this marginal or cultural Christian or a practical atheist, you know, that can, you know, fill in the blanks and, yep. you know, take the quiz, but doesn't really have a relationship. I, we got to be really, really careful. And I, I get the sentiment um, that he's going after here in this article about people that, you know, think that they're good because they can quote Psalm 23 and yep. they've listened to a Christian song at some point in their life. But, you know, and, I, and I've read different numbers, but this article is asserting that between 2007 and 2014, um, the no religious affiliation group has risen from 16.1% to 22.8%. Yep. And uh, I've heard different versions of those numbers, but they all kind of, they fall in line uh, essentially with that. In some ways, I've heard some people say, may, maybe the people that are choosing no religious affiliation is actually helping us get a better sense yep. of where we're actually at. Because we have all these, you know, we get a lot of pastors freaking out that like, our churches are shrinking. Yep. You're like, may, maybe. Maybe it's a good thing. Maybe the people, maybe they're not even really shrinking. It's just people being more honest about where they're actually at. And uh, and you were asking kind of offline. Okay, so how do we actually help people understand right. that just simply attending an event once a week that doesn't 
that doesn't make you a Christian any more than like standing in a garage makes you a car. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah, how, yeah. that can feel really not pastoral. Um, it can feel even harsh. And I, I've certainly heard people uh, give that sermon with pretty harsh tone. Is that necessary? Is does it does the urgency of that message warrant uh, delivery that maybe you know you and I would personally cringe at? Like right, how do you how do you really pastor people that? How do you do yeah. that? Well, I just know that when I read the Bible, that Jesus is frequently saying these types of things to the religious of that time, and that's what I think this article is getting at. That that there's a lot of religious people that may not be saved. They may not be followers of Jesus. He even says. The God of cultural Christianity is the big man upstairs, whether or not he is holy and people have sinned against him is irrelevant. Mm. I think I like you and I are never going to be the type of preachers who yell at people. I don't know. I'm a, I'm a yeller. I'm not a yeller, <laughs> not a yeller. And I don't think you are probably either. And I'm not a like a let's just heap the guilt on people. But I do think there's opportunities to hold up what Jesus said, not what we say, what Jesus said it means to follow him. And try to challenge people to look at their own lives mm. and trust the Holy Spirit to do a work in them. Mm. I don't think it's my job to point my finger at you and be like, you're a cultural Christian. You don't know what it means to follow Jesus. I'd be like, uh, yeah, I do. What's your problem? <laughs> uh, I do think it's my responsibility as a preacher and a pastor to say, hey, let's be honest about what Jesus says it means to follow him. Yeah. And let's hold that up against what a lot of our culture, maybe not you, but maybe you'll self-identify here. Mm. What, what a lot of our culture says it means to follow Jesus, those look off. Hmm. And let me hold these two up for you, and y- you decide. Let, let you know, prayerfully think about what do you believe it means to be a Christian, and hopefully through the power of the Holy Spirit, people will start to realize, okay, wait, no, I am. Something is off yeah. a little bit. I don't think it's my job to go, uh, you know, to look at my congregation and go, real Christian, fake Christian, right, fake right, Christian, right, real Christian. Right, right, right. That's not doing anybody any good. It is my role uh, to preach and teach and encourage people to know really what the Bible says the gospel is and what it means to follow Jesus. You're a good pastor, man. I, I think it's important to hold those up. I do think uh, in some instances, you know, we're given opportunity to um, to disciple, to apprentice people one-on-one, to have those tough conversations, yep. to even go after the things that so often in sort of Christian culture, like, you know, Jesus never once says, um, ask me to be your personal Lord and Savior. That's language we've just sort of accepted. Correct. But you just use the word follow like yep. three or four times. Yep. Like that's way different than personal Lord and Savior. I'm not knocking it. Eh, I kind of am knocking You're it. You're knocking a little bit. Following, trusting, dying yep. to ourselves is way more intense language than like, hey, pray this prayer. And yes. then you get to go to the clouds when you are yes. when you die rather than the bad place. Like I, I think it's, uh, it is incumbent upon us to keep that out in front, to talk about, man, Jesus is not comfortable being one of many options and sort of like a gospel buffet here for you. Like that, it it is sort of an all or nothing thing and how that lived out, you know, there's probably a myriad of ways to answer that. And pastorally, that's part of our responsibility, but to let people know, like, yeah, apart from Jesus, any of this religiosity is, is kind of worthless. And I do think, you know, I do think the whole pray a prayer and you're good to go is has been damaging. Yeah. When it's not better explained and talked about what it means to follow Jesus, a life of discipleship. And that's where I feel good about this article saying, hey, it's our job to help people understand that. It's not my job to tell people, hey, you know, I really think you're going to hell. Yeah. <laughs> even though you come here every week. Yeah, like, I right. Think, but help the people understand what it means to follow Jesus is our role. That's good. That's really good, man. Coming up next, we're going to talk a little bit about grief and sorrow and the, uh, the title of this story simply reads, Don't Tell Me That God Is Good. Mm. We're going to talk about that coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, a show all about 
Hopefully taking a deep dive into the mess and the gray, the stuff that we either disagree about, sometimes the stuff that we don't talk about. We want to create space for conversation, for dialogue, and we re- we really do mean that. It's not about coming up with conclusions all the time. Sometimes it's leaving with more answers because that's real. That's where a lot of us find ourselves. So we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or at 1160hope.com, plus all the previous shows are podcasted. And, and, and one of the things, Brian, that we've often talked about is just the messiness of being pastors, sometimes feeling like we ourselves don't have answers to mm-hmm. people's pain in particular. People's pain and questions uh, can feel tough to navigate. And that's just me being honest. That's just me being real about our role. Sometimes people look to us for answers, and and sometimes I feel like I'm just without them. Right. And I found this uh, this story on stillstandingmag.com, and the headline alone kind of piqued my interest. It says, Don't Tell Me God is Good. Mm. Don't tell me God is good. And it's written from the perspective of somebody of faith. So this isn't this isn't somebody who's like walked away from the church or walked away from Jesus. This, this is someone who's firmly planted in their faith, um, but also has experienced some real grief in their yeah. life and kind of opens up talking about, you know, the things that we tend to say God is good for, right? Like, you got the job. God is good. You close on the house. God is good, right? Like, you're, you're carrying twins. God is good. Like, these things that we cheer are are things worth saying God is good for. But kind of the point of the stories, though, is what what do we say, though, when things aren't going well? Yep. What do we say when the bottom drops out, we don't get the answer that we wanted? Or, or even worse, right, when a doctor says it's cancer or when a spouse says, I'm leaving you or when you lose the heartbeat. Like, what what do we say then? And I think we've touched on it a couple of times. I think so often the church doesn't know what to say. Right. And, and as a result, I think end up saying sometimes things that are even less helpful, usually because of our awkwardness, right? So we, like, given out of context verse yep. or we say something like everything happens for a reason or look for the silver lining. And I think, man, this, this story has really resonated with me for a number of reasons because I, I don't know that we have these conversations well. And I'd, I'd love to know how the general sentiment kind of hits you as, as a pastor, as a father or someone I know wrestles deeply with these yeah, things. And, and I know the author here uh, is writing also not as just a believer, but at, from a place of pain, Yeah, uh, having lost children. Uh, she talks about in this article and uh, we both want to affirm that God is good. Like, this is not a conversation of is God good or not. It's yeah. a conversation of how we talk to people when they're hurting. Hmm. It's an acknowledgement of pain. So, you know, hey, you got the job. Hey, everything's happy. God is good. Well, then you have to be able to say God is good at the same time when the bad things happen. And so yeah. this person, this for article for me really is a lot about how do we talk to people in the midst of their darkest moments. Yeah, right. Uh, and you and I talked, la- I think, last week about uh, you know, in the book of Job, the way that the, the most helpful thing in the book of Job is the friend who just sits there yes, quietly. Right. Um, and the question is, if if you are going to be able to say God is good to people in the good times, then you have to be able in the bad times. Hmm. But yet it's often really inappropriate and painful. That's not not inappropriate. It's just not what people want to hear. Hmm. Oh, wow, Ian, you just tragedy struck today. God's so good. And you're mm. like, what? That's not helpful to me. Right. Whether you theologically believe it or not, or mm. whether down the road you need to hear it or not. Basically, if we're going to say God's good, we have to be able to unpack that for people in their hardest times. And this article does a good job, but really, I believe, is getting at the question, when tragedy strikes, when hard times are going on, how do we speak about God to people in mm. a way that's both honest and helpful? Well, and maybe maybe even before that, is speaking even the right first step when right. someone's grieving, right? That's kind of what you touched on. I think 
you know, being fully present with someone in their grief can feel really counterintuitive because yes. we are we are an answers driven culture, we're solutions driven culture. I'm certainly wired that way, and I think, ah, oh, man, when I think of like my own seasons of pain and grief, platitudes couldn't hold a flame to presence, Correct. right? Like that's really good. Like just you know, ideas of like look for the silver lining. I I really do know people meant well, and and just to be clear. I've not experienced, I don't think, the level of grief that this author is talking about, the no. way that many people in my church. I mean, there's stories that, like, knock the wind out of me when I hear them. And even then, my inclination still is to, like, fix it or to, like, help them look at the bright side or give them, like, action steps to, you know, pull out of it. Mm. And so, like, this whole sentiment is really tough for me because just sitting in someone's grief is is really, really tough. And I, I remember somebody years ago saying, that the most painful part of your story, though, might be the most life-giving part of someone else's. Mm. That when I'm going through my own pain, the point isn't just to like solve it or make it go away. That to, to recognize that God is doing something in the midst of that, yes. and that it's okay to be sad. In fact, it's okay to be angry. It's yep. okay to not have answers. And I think we establish cultures like that throughout the year. You know, just simply saying to someone, "Hey, it's okay to be angry," is one thing. To actually like create cultures and churches and communities. That convey that truth regularly is a yeah. whole different thing. That this is a safe place to not have answers, to not have conclusions, to be angry, yes. to really grieve, rather than you know this like nice Christian happy that a lot of us feel this innate pressure to have. Um, I think that's. I just think that's so important and so much easier said than done. The author writes, "Honest that God isn't just good because we get the job or the new house or the miraculous healing." He's good because he grieves with us and mourns with us That's and good. walks with us as he redeems our pain and heals our hurt. Tell people that when you want them to know God is good. Tell them that your world was shattered and he picked you up and kept you breathing. Hmm. Tell them that you didn't know how you'd face another minute and he gave you the strength to do so. Tell them you stood in the church daring God to heal your heart, crying in the most pain and agony you've ever felt. And he gave you unimaginable strength mm. and healing. That's the God people need to know, the everlasting, enduring one, regardless of the circumstance. Like wow. there's a depth wow. to God's goodness there that I think would be comforting if you were if someone told you that in the midst of your pain. Yeah. That's that's that is hard to hear and deep. Well it's, and it's the kind of thing that like at Christmas time we always talk about God with us, Emmanuel, yep. right? But it always stays as sort of this like general ethereal yep. like talking about the incarnation. But what if that actually means God is fully with us and present in our pain right. when it feels like he's absent. Like that's the kind of stuff that I think we don't do a good job of talking about because I don't, I don't know. I think we're uncomfortable with that intimacy, that presence. And so often we, we kind of navigate simply based on, based on my perceived emotion at the time, but like to know that even when I can't feel him, when I don't have the experience of the knowledge of God's closeness, that he still is. And yes. that, Man, that for us to be the hands and feet of Jesus in that way sometimes I think means to be quiet and to just grieve. I I think honestly, until we're changed by someone else's grief, um, until that carves out like a depth in our mm-hmm. hearts, I don't know that we even have room to speak in the first place. Right. Like I, I want to be changed, and maybe that's maybe that's too lofty. I don't know. Like not being, I think entering into someone's pain means that as a result that I'm changed too by it in in the right way, but also in like really difficult ways. And I yep. think you know. There's a lot of different avenues of, of healing and growth, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm foreseeking help and counseling and all that yeah. stuff too. But to be a people that say, and even in the valley, even in the dark night of the soul, right, when it feels like the bottom's dropped out, God is near and he's present. And I don't have to say anything in this moment right now yep. to make that clear to you. I'm just going to simply be with you. Exactly. And that's so hard because I get it. We all want to give people answers, not, 
not to make ourselves feel better, but we think it's genuinely going to make that person feel better. Yeah, right. And so it's it's all done from great motives, but I think we all just need to realize that people in pain, a lot of times those flippant answers add to the pain. Yep. And they don't alleviate pain. And um, and so being able to sit in the quiet or just reading them some of the scripture, like, hey, I don't understand what's going on with you. I just mm. know the truths of God. Let me read to you mm. some of these things if you want. And then, yeah, I'd like to hear those. All right, let me just read to you God's word about him being near to the brokenhearted totally. and him being present. Like, that's life-giving. And then yeah. and then you can get to the spot where you proclaim, hey, God's good. I don't understand the situation, but he is good. And even if you're in the midst of pain right now, wherever you're at, yep. it feels like the bottom has dropped out. You don't see a light at the end of any tunnel. Just know that God is near, that he's present even, and maybe even especially when you can't see or sense it, and to lean into that, to allow your heart to grieve, allow your heart to be angry, and allow God to begin to like creep into that space and redeem even the darkest, most heartbreaking yes. parts of your life. And I think, man, I don't know that the gospel is ever more real and on display than when we invite God into our brokenness, because yeah. that really is kind of the gospel message, I think, at its core. Absolutely. Well, coming up next, uh, there's an author that thinks or believes that the idea of online church is actually an oxymoron. With the rise of like digital church communities, uh, one writer believes that online church is an oxymoron. So we're going to talk about that coming up next on The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. show all about diving into the mess and the gray and the tense, but also the stuff that we have in common, the stuff that, if we're honest, maybe a lot of us have asked but never you know, articulated, never found space to actually dialogue. And it does seem like the chasms are growing wider and wider, and so we want to kind of do our part to counteract that, to create a space for a conversation, for a dialogue. And there's a, there's a couple of ways you can do that. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. All the previous shows are there. Plus, we're mm-hmm. podcasted. If yeah, we the, are. Is that the correct use of the word? Podcasted. podcasted. It might not even be correct. Yes. Either way, it's true. So whatever device you use, we're there, and uh, we would love to hear from you. And as I mentioned, um, this idea of online church is something that's um, it has been around for a while, but has like really blown up the last, I'd say, probably five or six years. Yeah. In fact, we at the Yellow Box just started um, streaming our services live on Facebook in the last half a year. Yep. And uh, it's been a pretty fascinating thing to kind of see that morph and grow over the last six months. But the the headline simply reads, uh, online church is an oxymoron, Mm. which again, headlines are meant to be, you know, a little kitschy, a little clickbaity. Like I get what it's kind of going after there, but I'm, I'm curious your thoughts, one on sort of the online movement and two uh, is this author right? Does he does he have something right about the idea of online church being? Uh, an I oxymoron? certainly don't think it's an oxymoron because okay. that implies like an online thing can't be anything like a church, right? Can't be. Okay. Um, I think he raises some good, um, some good struggles in this, such okay. as um, it's hard to take part in the sacraments right from your living room when you're just connected online. It's possible. I'm sure you can make ways to do that. It is difficult to get any meaningful community. It's possible. Um, What I would say with online church is some of the things that I think are most important about church are more difficult to pull off on the online venue. But I'm not not one to say they can't be pulled off. I've never really invested in one. Um, I'm curious. You said Yellow Box is doing it. Yeah. It's just on Facebook. Are you finding more people there? People are using that because they can't be at church that day. They're normally there on a Sunday morning, but a kid's sick or this or that. 
or are you finding that there's a whole separate group of people who are only online? Yeah, a couple of ways. I mean, it's still so new. Yeah. We're still kind of mining some of that data, and we have we have an incredible team that's kind of overseeing. Like the the amount of statistical research that they've done and continue to do is yeah. mind boggling to me. But yeah, so so definitely the first category. We see a lot of people like, man, kid was thrown up. We just couldn't get in. Uh, we're traveling out of town. Yep. So glad you guys are streaming so we can still feel like we're a part of it. But we are also finding a number of people who have friends that they've been trying to invite that oh. are not interested, at least yet, darkening the door of a church. But like this is a really great kind of entryway for them. They're like, all right, well, we know that you're maybe not ready for like a like a whole drive there in person thing. But like, what if we watch this together and then talked about it? Like people yeah. are using it. Not only is a springboard to the idea of Christianity, but also as a springboard for conversation. Like they're they're following it up with like, hey, let's watch together, yeah, and then go grab a coffee, go go grab a beer. Like let's talk a little bit more about what you like, what you dislike, what you totally disagree with, or anecdotally, what you think of, you know, the environment, the yeah. songs, the whatever. Like people are using it as a as a conversation starter, and I like that as a, as a platform to. Hopefully, the goal though I would guess would be to eventually correct me if I'm wrong would be to correct eventually. Uh, engage them on a more deep level. Yeah. Um, so I, I think if online church is the end all, like that is that is where we're just we're wanting to allow people just to sit in that and do it in their living room and and never connect with the other people who are online with them out there. I think that there's an important element of what it means to be the church, the gathered people of God, which is uh, dangerous. Well, and I think honestly, um, and I'm kind of speaking way out of my element here. Yeah. I think even how we understand gathering though is going to shift dramatically in the next 20 years so it's easy to say uh we just want to use streaming as a way to get them in the door i also think how we understand gathering once once they're in the door well and i think i think even before that i think how we understand gathering in general i think digital expressions of gathering are going to look more and more like physical gathering and i will say i'm pretty old school in this regard that there's no replacement for like face to face me look you in the eyes i do think however that the advancements of like true connection that we've been able to see with people online, being able to facilitate online discussions, we do a lot of training online. Like, I think the idea of the church as an address has already been pretty unhelpful mm-hmm. to the idea of church in general. We, I'm going to church, right? Yep. That already is, I think, a misunderstanding of ecclesia, the, the gathered people. So we say, oh, the church is this address, the church is this time, this place. I get why we do that, but I think that's that. I think that has been massively shifted in the last hundred years. So so why wouldn't an online expression potentially in two decades? I mean, think about how much we've advanced technologically already from from the 90s, from yep. the early 2000s. I think we will see more and more legitimate connection in digital spaces. And for us to simply say, oh, it's, it's only a springboard, I think is missing out on some real opportunities that the church could have there. Yeah, I, I could see that. There's still, maybe I'm just getting old, right? <laughs> I, I'm having trouble... Uh, picturing and i would love to hear from somebody who has a great idea like what is what does an online church look like where the end goal is uh, is remaining online like where is that yeah. what is that sort of discipleship look I, again i'm i think i'm a little bit of like like this article this guy's a little bit like the the old guy on the front lawn being like that's not church and i don't want right. to be that guy i want right. to say okay i'm open to it it feels uncomfortable to me um, it feels like there is just a major part of what it means to be the family of God yeah. missing, but maybe there's a major part of what it means to be the family of God missing in our current. Okay. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's exact. Cause his and big contention so, is, yeah, but you're not in person though. You're yeah. not like doing life on life. And I'm like, that probably already describes a lot of people yeah. who are physically driving somewhere 
talking to next to nobody who are still passively receiving yep. uh, music and a sermon. They're, they're maybe actually eating like actual bread and juice yep. and then they're leaving. Like yep. they're, they're, there's yep. maybe not that much different from a lot of people's physical experience than there would be in a digital experience. So maybe it's two conversations because it's, I think, okay, if I, this is going to sound crazy. Yeah. I think in some ways it's actually easier. It's an easier jump on an online forum to then parlay that into discussion, into dialogue, yeah. because people, there's your guards down a little bit in that environment where people physically, they hate the moment of greeting. They don't want to interact yeah. with other people. You might even have some added benefit by trying to facilitate like true community yep. in an online fashion that I think could be really helpful. Maybe what I'm feeling uncomfortable about with the online, it feels like a, an extension, uh, like a next step of what's already not going well. <laughs> or not not going well, but it's uh, I get some, that. some brokenness. Like maybe I'd, I want to go, let's evaluate what's not working now and, and maybe move it in the other direction towards where it's more personable, more connective, rather than keep going to where people are now seeing less of each other. Um, but I, guilty for sure that I believe that a lot of what we do in evangelical churches now feels like it, you get that online too. Like it could be the same experience yeah. uh, without having to run into people. Well, <laughs> honestly, and again, like, I'm processing all of this in yeah. real time right now. Maybe this is the next iteration for the mega movement, right? What What if it's uh, these online offerings and then people meeting in homes? Maybe it's a collection of 8, 10, 12 people who, you know, maybe you don't have a musician among you or you don't have some, you know, maybe maybe you are participating in this online experience and then you're actually sharing the Eucharist together and you're dialoguing together. Maybe you're using the platform that sometimes these larger churches, they have resources that a lot of, you know, a lot of times like a house church or a small group doesn't have. What if that becomes an opportunity then to gather and, and actually do community life together? It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out over the years. I'll be really curious to see how it develops, man. I think that's a, a really fascinating conversation that we yep. get to be a part of. Well, this has been an interesting conversation and one that I don't think we'll see the last of. Um, but we want to lean in to be the people of God, to be a true community, doing life together. And that's kind of my hope and prayer. This has been The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. show all about hopefully taking a deep dive into the stuff that maybe doesn't have easy answers, stuff that has gray, intense. Uh, honestly, sometimes there's no answers to be had. I think sometimes it's about continuing a conversation, having a dialogue when we are inclined to argue or to shut the other person down. What if we actually created space to lean in, to have a dialogue? And as always, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com and all the previous shows are there. Plus, we are podcasted, so literally whatever device you use to listen to podcasts, yes. we're there. There's a sundial version. There's a we'll, carrier pigeon version. It's We'll even come to your house and do this. <laughs> <laughs> Brian will come to your house, <laughs> and I will, I will laugh from online. Okay, so, so today is the, uh, the second day of Lent. Yes. 
And uh, we've we've talked a little bit kind of offline anecdotally, I, at least throughout my personal life. Sometimes I've celebrated it. Sometimes I haven't. Uh, I didn't grow up in a church that celebrated it. Then I did internships in college, and some did, some didn't. And uh, at least maybe like in Protestant circles, it's, it just sort of seemed like a crapshoot. Yes. Like whether or not you couldn't really tell at first blush whether or not this was going to be like a Lent practicing church. Yep. Does your church practice Lent? Uh, my current church? No. Yeah. Uh, no, but I want to grow us in it. And oh, I think okay. you're getting into that tension a little bit. I also grew up, I never grew up in a church that did Lent, did Ash Wednesday, right? Like that was something the Catholics did. The Catholic kids came to school with the ash on their forehead. Right, right, right. Um, and I'm sure it wasn't just Catholic kids, but in my mind, it was just the Catholic kids. Hmm. And then when I was at Glen Ellen Bible Church, uh, that's where I worked before planting Four Corners Community Church. When I worked at Glen Ellen Bible Church, Kelly Brady, as the pastor, he instituted an Ash Wednesday service. And that was very interesting to go through. Like, A, you felt awkward taking the ashes because you weren't used to it. But B, there was some pushback against Mm. it. Uh, And so, you know, I've kind of taken the step of like, you know what, we're going to keep teaching our people about Lent and giving them resources. But next year, I'd like to take a much deeper dive into it, I think. Uh, But it is interesting because I feel like in my upbringing in the church, and maybe I'm wrong, but at least it's kind of how it was. It was just something that evangelicals didn't do, Mm. right? And all Lent is is a season uh, of observance, uh, 40 days from Ash Wednesday to Good Friday, that is supposed to remind you of your sinfulness and your need for God so that you can then celebrate at Easter yeah. and at Good Friday. And, um, yeah, it's just interesting. I, I wonder why it is. What are your thoughts? Why do you think the evangelical church has oftentimes pushed back against Lent and not really done it? Is it just a thing that we don't observe a church calendar? Yeah. Is it, or is it something deeper than that? I th- uh, I I almost always think it's something deeper. I think sometimes <laughs> it's true. sometimes it's a uh, it's a baby and bathwater situation. Sometimes it's baby bathwater and the idea of bathing all together that we toss out. I think sometimes <laughs> we we there's a an angst to disconnect from tradition. Yep. In fact, sometimes even like in our songs, we we kind of rail against tradition, anything that like anchors us to the past. And I think sometimes you know if you understand the history of Protestantism. Yep. Some of that's there. Some of that's real. And I think um, some of the skittishness behind, like, oh, gosh, that's that tired old rote tradition. Yep. yep. Um, I, I get I get that. But I also think, man, there's so much rich beauty in, man, people people of our tradition have been doing this for centuries in yep. various different ways. I think much of how we, you know, particularly evangelicals, you know, try to dip a toe in Lent. Yes. Sort of like Lent light. <laughs> and so as not to spook the Protestants, which um, – which, I, you know, I'll turn it on myself. I've certainly done that. You know, a few years ago, uh, I started an organization called Beauty in the Common. Yep. And uh, we'll talk about that another time. But it's it's really about, like, helping elevate uh, the beautiful in common spaces yep. that we sort of overlook. And um, It's kind of trying to get the common good. Common good. Kind of, <laughs> yeah, I'm noticing a common theme yes, here. Yes, But I actually created a, a Lent guide. You can find it if you want. It's beautyinthecommon.com. And just click on that first article there. And one of the things that we challenge people to do, I put together this whole guide that kind of walks through like weekly fasts and things to think about and pray. But then like the real low hanging fruit is this this calendar that I created of uh, different words associated with different uh, with each specific day of Lent. Mm. So to like look for that specific word in some way, capture it on your phone, post it somewhere with the hashtag beauty in the common. And it becomes like this like digital collective experience of people seeing beauty in common spaces. It's sort of a way of like standing against the constant go culture of always doing, always going, always accomplishing to like to actually reflect on the beautiful things and stuff that maybe we would tend to overlook in our yeah. culture for a full 40 days leading up to Easter. And that's been really interesting 
how meaningful that's been for people because it wasn't it was sort of just like this idea a few years ago, like, oh, maybe this would be helpful for people. And year after year, people are like, man, I go back and I look at this 40-day journey of like, God, help me to see yeah. beautiful things in my life that I normally overlook. Um, has been a really, I think, a helpful discipline and and something that, for whatever reason, doesn't spook Protestants. Yes. It's like, oh, I could take a photo and post it. Be like, oh, I that's that's not weird. I could do that. you know. And I yeah. think so finding those like entry, entry points that maybe um, lead to a deeper that's experience. That's good. And I do think, as I think about why are Protestants somewhat spooked by Lent, um, I, I do think it's it's that it kind of comes out of Catholicism or Anglican churches and this and that. And a lot of, like I know my church, right? Uh, we have a lot of what I affectionately just refer to as ex-Catholics, people mm. who used to be in the Catholic church uh, and are now going to a warehouse non-denominational church. Right? <laughs> you right, right, right. They've run to the other side. And so their baggage with stuff like this is very interesting. But uh, regardless of the mechanism, I do think it's important for us as evangelicals, as Protestants, uh, to figure out ways. Like, like, why is the next generation seem to be embracing things like Lent? Because we're increasingly consumeristic and pre- increasingly plugged in. And what Lent asks us to do is to be less consumeristic, right. to be less plugged in for the purpose of focusing on Jesus and and on who we are, who he is, what he has done for us. And I think people are craving that. Totally. So it's not about the vehicle of Lent, like how you do it, what you give up. Do you eat meat? Do you do this on Friday? Whatever. Yeah. But it's about the mechanism of, you know, I'm going to slow down. I'm going to kind of get out of the rat race. I'm going to, you know, kind of get offline a little bit or whatever else it might be mm. so that I can focus myself and be prepared uh, for this celebration of the good news that's coming in 40 days. That. That was really pastoral, man. Thank I think you. that's a, that's a helpful way to think about it, particularly for those who might be thinking, I've been stiff-arming Lent maybe unnecessarily. Yep. And I, uh, I, I found this story that I actually thought illustrates the idea of Lent in a really, uh, really curious way. It says, uh, Apollo 13 astronaut Jim Lavelle used to tell a story about a mission he flew in his F-2H Banshee off the coast of Japan in 1950. He had missed the rendezvous point when his uh, instruments mistakenly picked up a signal leading him away from his aircraft carrier. Lavelle felt... Hopelessly lost as he flew circles in the dark over the stormy sea of Japan. Mm. As he tried to use his map light, suddenly all of the electronics in the cockpit shorted out and everything went black, which is terrifying. A bad omen, he thought, until he began looking down at the water below. With the absence of light in the cockpit, his eyes began to adjust to the dark, making it possible to see the faint trail of phosphorescent algae churned up by the uh, propellers of the carrier he was looking for. Wow! He followed the trail and landed safely. Were it not... For the failed light and the resulting darkness, Lavelle might have been forced to ditch his plane. The darkness saved him. He goes on to say, this story is a great metaphor for the observance of Lent. It is meant to be a season in which Christians voluntarily short out the cockpit lights of our Mm. daily routines through Lenten fasts, hoping that in the self-induced darkness, we might actually be able to see our way forward a little better. And if ever a people needed to turn out the lights and sit in the darkness for for a while— it's the typical American Christian. And I just think that the idea of like sitting in the darkness for just a little bit for the purposes of growing yes. closer to Jesus and reflecting on our lives is such such an important practice, like one just, that I need for sure. And people need to remember it's not about Lent. It's not these are these are mechanisms to get you to uh, like you said, disconnect, to turn the lights out, to do whatever. Um, so it's not about the rules. It's not about that. It's about what's the purpose that we're searching for. And I think a lot of us Americans, a lot of us evangelicals, uh, would be well um, verse to be able to 
uh, start doing some of these things. Not everything's, you know, just crazy like, whoo, this is awesome, but to slow down yeah, and, and focus. And a lot of times those rules are the vehicles that get us there. Correct. Right? Those are the things that kind of help frame us. Coming up next, uh, I'm just going to read this title. I think, I think this is hook enough. It says, Two Delusions That Can Threaten Any Church. Mm. Two Delusions That Can Threaten Any Church. We're going to talk about that next on The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. <laughs> Hey, friends, we're just going to dance to this song for a little bit. Don't mind us. You mean dance more. (laughs) (laughs) Or continue dancing. I think when we began this show, I never would have guessed how dancey you'd be just in general. But if people could just see me, I'm like sitting in a chair. I'm short, so my feet aren't even touching the ground. I'm just kind of spinning around. (laughs) It's true. It's also like just the safest like white dance ever, which I'm I'm right there with you, man. (laughs) Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the dancey Brian Fromm. And uh, you can join us every day here on AM 1164 to 6 p.m. But we're also on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. Plus, the show is podcasted. And we would love, love, love to interact with you in any way, shape, or form. Um, because ultimately, like, we're just here to serve you guys. So hopefully this is uh, helpful and engaging. And uh, we'd love to know what you agree with, what you disagree with, what rattled your cage a little bit. Um, because that's about leaning in. It's about having a conversation even when we disagree, even when we don't have uh, easy answers. Mm. And we mentioned earlier, uh, I want to talk about this story that we found, and the title says, Two Delusions That Can Threaten Any Church. Yes. And as pastors, that obviously piqued my interest. Anytime I see stuff that's like, hey, th- this could potentially be a threat to the community that you like, love and care for, and um, I, the two delusions that are listed here are way more insightful than I thought they'd be. Yes. So, Brian, why don't you, why don't you walk us through them a little bit? Let me give you the first one, the first delusion. Uh, it says this devotion of the whole community frees leaders and members from at least two deadly delusions about their role in the church. Hmm. It says delusion number one, the people are property of the leader. Yeah, uh, It's a privilege it reads to lead the people of God, but that privilege never transforms the people into the leader's property. That's good. Godly leadership results in humble stewardship, not prideful ownership. Oof, church good. leaders are not called to stand above a conglomeration of individuals as if the purpose of these people is to fulfill our vision. Rather, God calls shepherds to serve in the midst of a flock wholly devoted to its purposes. That is good stuff. That'll preach, man. And the point being that that it is an unhealthy, non-biblical church if the leader views uh, the congregation as a means to an end, right? right? Like, oh, they are my way to get more people. They are my way to fund the church budget. They are the way to to move my vision forward. If it's about the leader, then that is a delusion that makes for an unhealthy church. Well, and I think, too, the thing that's dangerous about this one is that most leaders know better than to actually say this, <laughs> right? Like on the surface, like, oh, of course I don't see them as property. The difficulty in the and the article kind of drills down a little deeper is yeah, but are they behaving as if that's true? Like yep. so, particularly and we talked about this before. If uh, if you're a communicator, part of the curse of communicating is that maybe you know how to make things sound good when they're not. You know how to spin a story, and that can be a double edged sword. So like, while while most leaders know better than to say, oh yeah, this is my congregation, yep. they are my property. We know not to say that. Yes, but the the really humbling part uh, is to to look at the practices of the leader. Are, are you behaving as if, oh, the church is just here to fulfill my vision, to right. mobilize the mission? And um, I, we want people to be on mission, right? So it can be a really fine line to mobilizing people, helping them live out the, the gospel, and, and, and helping them live out my vision, yeah. right? And that distinction, I think, is really important. Listen to this line. Ready? 
The church is the blood-bought property of God. For a pastor to treat the people as his platform is an act of treasonous theft, stealing for himself Dang. that which Christ purchased at the co- cost of his own blood. Dang, I mean, that's, that's good. That's hard. Uh, I think for me, uh, I think a great test uh, for congregants, for leaders out there is, like, is my goal, is one of my goals as a pastor that my church is healthy after I leave it? Oh yeah, like that, right. That I've set it up so that it's going to thrive if, if and when I leave. If I were to right. die tomorrow, can our church thrive? Yep. Or is it really about me? Yep. And that if I were to go away, it would all of a sudden just flounder mm. because it was my church, my vision, my dreams, uh, and everybody was just like the soldiers there to accomplish what I told them to accomplish. Yeah, right. I this isn't totally related, but I was thinking of something I heard a preacher say years ago. He said, "You will either love people and use money, mm-hmm. or you will love money and use people." Yep. And sometimes if if the goal is not like care for people and maybe it's not money, maybe it's fame, yep. maybe it's book sales, whatever it is, if that isn't seat number one, you you really have no other choice but then to use people to accomplish that goal. Correct. And that man, that is a that's an ugly thing to recognize in a human heart, but something so necessary for leaders to wrestle with. Okay, so delusion one, uh the people are the property of the leader. What's delusion number two, Brian? So the property uh, delusion number two is the leader uh, delusion. Sorry, delusion two is the leader's property of the people. Yeah. So delusion one was the people are a property of the leader. Delusion two is the leader's property of the people, and this is the other end of the spectrum. The yep. other end of the unhealthy spectrum that because you know you're paying this guy or girl yeah, to right. be in charge of your church that you could tell them what to do. You could set the expectations, and they have to be present for the whim of every person. Within the church. And again, hopefully no church member would ever actually say that, but it's a matter of practice. It's a matter Hmm. of uh, how do we actually live it out? Just the same way with delusion one, like you said, nobody would ever say that, but they live it. This is the same thing. This is just this pendulum swung too far the other way. That's right. Which sometimes you'll see people like if they get pulled over by a cop and they'll try and badmouth the the police officer and say, I pay your salary, man. It's sort of this. It's usually like to get out of some sort of sticky spot, which I imagine I've never really experienced this, but I wonder that that probably exists in church culture too, right? If mm-hmm. a, a pastor is maybe saying something, convicting some hard truth, someone's inclination might be to say, hey, man, I, I pay your salary. Exactly. Why, why, why don't you keep those convicting words to yourself, right? Which, again, by the grace of God, I don't think anyone's ever bluntly said that. But I think it, it can be, a, again, this one is a tricky thing to navigate yes. because, yeah, leaders are not the property, but— Oftentimes, leaders do need to be held accountable, yes. and like you're saying, when the pendulum goes far the other way, leaders feel like they're untouchable. They're like, I'm not your property. You're like, yep. yeah, but right now you're being kind of a jerk, yeah. <laughs> and someone's <laughs> rightly holding you accountable, yes. so yes. you can like, you know, you can wave this flag and say, I'm not your property. You're like, yep. you are a part of the body, though, yep. and uh, and that that is that's a tough distinction to walk. And the real question then for us becomes, what does that? If we've said this is the either end of the spectrum, or this right. is the pendulum swinging too far, what is the middle? Right? Uh, what what does a healthy uh, leader congregant structure look like that is a healthy church, a thriving church, and ready to go? Yeah. Uh, your opinion, what does that look like? Where, what's that middle ground for us? I, I mean, the middle ground, I think Paul talks about it a time, particularly in Ephesians, about like this mutual submission. Yes. You know, that there there does need to be, I think, some level of infrastructure, obviously. And I think sometimes in the West, we can be, we can be really madly in love with our infrastructure, yep. you know, in a way that sometimes churches represent, they look more like businesses yep. and churches. That's maybe a story for a later time. But, um, man, if we're mutually submitting to each other with Christ as the head, like we got to remember every at every church, 
Jesus is the lead pastor. Yep. Ultimately. And that, you know, can sound kitschy and bumper stickery, but like it, if that's not actually true, you, you get into a lot of these messes. That's where I, and the, and the story ends, I think, beautifully saying we we have to root ourselves first and foremost, not in being property or having others as property, but being a dearly beloved child of God. Yes. Like it's for me, it always comes back to like resting first in that identity. And that kind of sets us up, I think, for success and everything else. And for the, on the pastor side, that means to say, you know, Jesus is the pastor of this church. I'm a child of God. I've been called to shepherd these people for however long I'm called to do it. That does mean an ability to walk away and still go, hey, Jesus is still at that church. Yes, like, right. It's not about me. Right, uh, right. Or if they, you know, if the church says, we don't want you here anymore, it is the ability to say, you know what, I'm I'm okay with that. I'm a child of God. I can go with that. And, and I do think when people out there who aren't leaders and pastors, I think this is a really good way to evaluate your church. Yep. How do they view the, the senior leadership? Do they Does that senior leader view the church as its property? That's a bad thing. Yep. We've seen those problems with That's that recently. Right. But is the other end of the spectrum going on? Are they just beating down the senior leader and there's all these people in the church who feel that ability? That's also a bad thing, and totally. I'd be careful with either of those. Totally, totally. And I, I do feel like sometimes we're a broken record, but it, I really think it, it comes back to identity. Yep. To start first and foremost there, uh, and to and to miss that I think can be catastrophic in a number of different ways. Correct. Okay, so that was two delusions that could threaten any church. Coming up next, we're going to talk about three words to help your family grow together and not apart. I mean, who among us doesn't want our family to grow together, yep. whether you're in dire straits or you're actually kind of coasting along at a good tick right now. Either way, um, I think this is going to be an absolutely fascinating discussion. Three words to help your family grow together and not apart. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show all about Diving into the mess, the gray, the stuff that we share in common, maybe to learn more about what we have in common, stuff we didn't think of off the top of our heads. And that, that's been what's really fascinating for me is to realize oh, we have a lot more in common than maybe uh, meets the eye. And we'd love to interact with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You also go to 1160hope.com. All the previous shows are podcasts. And we would love to hear from you. And uh, one of the things that I really love about our dynamic, Brian, is that um, we're both pastors. We're both uh, fathers. But you're kind of at a, a different stage than I am. Yes. And uh, it's been fascinating even just hear you talk about your marriage and your kids. And I've, I've honestly, like, taken notes. Like, okay, 10 years from now, I need to be doing that. Um, but we came across this story, though, that I, it, at least piqued my interest. Three words to help your family grow together and not grow apart. Yep. You know, so I have a 16-month-old and a one-month-old. But all this stuff is, like, in the forefront of my mind. Like, yeah. what are the rhythms and practices and disciplines that I can start setting up now to set us up for success, you know, in the future, because I, of course, I want my family to grow together, and it can sound probably easier said than done, because like my, you know, my eldest just started walking, like he's not talking back to me, he's not, we haven't had any of those disagreements yet. So yep. I'm, I'm curious, what what is this uh, story talking about when it comes to those three yeah. things? And let me just affirm you, the fact that you're asking that question at a young age means your family will do well. Ah, oh, thanks, man. So I'm not that young. I know, but your kids are. <laughs> That's all. Oh, got your it. I got are. it. Uh, it. Just asking those questions is the beginning of, like, that's the answer. Like, it, the fact that you're asking is a good sign, mm -hmm. right? Because none of us, what you, what you don't want to have happen is like, oh, I'm just going to get through these early years. All of a sudden, your, teenage, your kid's a teenager. And you're like, right. well, now I'm going to build into them. Right, right. You've got to be building into them. So, like, my daughter, who's now a teenager, she's uh, 15. She's a freshman at Downers Grove North. And um, I used to just 
you know, file this one away when she was in second, third grade. She really liked this. Now, interesting, my older two kids didn't like this. They don't want me to do this with them. Mm. But there was a season probably for two years at school where the secretaries knew me really well because mm. once a week I showed up at their school and took my daughter out of school and took her to Subway. No kidding. And we did that every week. Now, my other kids don't want to miss recess in school. Oh, so they, fascinating. I'm like, hey, you want me to come get you? They're like, no. No, stay away. I don't even ask them anymore. <laughs> the Madeline, she just loved it. We It became our date. And just you know, I think it's just random stuff like that. But you're right. We came across this article by uh, Ann Voskamp, mm-hmm. uh, and she's talking more to parents of teenagers because we all get worried when our kids are teenagers that they're going to push away from us, and that's natural, uh, that they're going to, you know, we're going to just argue with them all the time. You know, there, there's more fighting and all this stuff. And Voskamp writes this, uh, when your kids grow up, you don't have to grow apart. You can grow with them. You could take steps toward your teenager or young adult in a mutual journey of intentional growth Hmm. that trusts God to transform your entire family. Hmm. This is parenting that changes you and changes your kid, and it can be fueled by three short words. Here's the payoff. She says, here's the three words that will transform your parenting. Hmm. Tell me more. Hmm. Tell me more. And I read that, and I was just like, oh, that is great. That is gold. Because here's what you want as you get older with your kids. You want, no matter how much tension there is in your house, and there will be tension with teenagers or even younger, no matter how much frustration there can be, this and that, you always want your teenager, or uh, not even your teenager, you just want your children to know that they can talk to you. Yeah, right. That mom and dad's door is open, that you care enough to talk about things, that they can struggle with you, that they can even you know tell you the things that they're struggling with and that they're doing wrong. I think that it is a huge red flag uh, when that line of communication is completely broken and it's just all fighting or it's just all right. existing and you see the teenager always with their headphone on and always with this. Like, don't believe the lie. I think that teenagers don't want to connect with their parents. Don't want to. They want to know that you love them. They mm. want to know that you're there with them. And so her words there, like these three words encompass so much that if you can look at your kid and parenthetically, if I could say this kid's good for any relationship. Yeah, right. Uh, marriages. Uh, neighbors, family, whatever. Hmm. Uh, this oh, this this posture that says, "Just tell me more. Tell yeah. me how you're doing. Tell me what you're thinking." I know that if my child and my teenager knows that that's how I feel about them, that that's my posture, they're going to eat that up. Yeah, they're going to want me to sit on the end of their bed and talk to them. They're going to want me to interact with them. They're going to want to go out with me. And it's not that whole lie that teenagers like, "No, mom and dad are such dorks. I don't want to be with them ever." <laughs> it's just not true. I think part of the tell me more sentiment too kind of rails against this like I have to solve everything all the time yes. sentiment. Like I'm hearing those words wondering, yeah, why wouldn't I say tell me more? I'm like, yeah. oh, that's because I can I can I can project in the future my son comes to me with an issue, I immediately want to go to like fix mode or like correction mode or solve mode. And uh I don't think any of those instincts are necessarily bad, but yep. I yeah, I do and you know, you and I we're like professional talkers. <laughs> you know what I mean? So sometimes tell me more also means stop stop talking, Ian. Like like let them yes. continue to keep keep diving in rather than okay, I've got the thirty second commercial, I'm gonna I'm gonna fix now based on the information that you've given me. Yes. And the uh, the phrase that she keeps using throughout the story is be a wall, be a wall. And this idea of a wall that, you know, if you're swimming, they can they can swim away from but then come back to this Ooh. wall, which is scary because you know, we both were youth pastors. I can't tell you how many panicked parents I had 
when their kid read their first philosophy book yes. or had their first like world religions class and like, oh my gosh, they're asking questions about all these other things. And uh, I mean, it's easier said than done. You know, I haven't done this with my kids yet, but like, it's okay that they're reading from some of these other yep. authors and they're yep. like trying to grab, they should grapple and wrestle. And I want them to do that in my house, right. not out of my house. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> totally. But they're, yes. I mean, even when they, so let's say it's not even just grappling. Let's say you have a kid that's wrestling with like real doubt. Like mom and dad, I don't, I don't think I believe any of this. Yep. You know that that posture. Tell me more. Tell me more about yep. that. Rather than like you are in a Jesus household and you will worship <laughs> Jesus because I'm a pastor. Like, yes. I mean, hopefully we wouldn't say it like that. But yep. that tendency to like correct when we see something that makes us fearful. Gosh, that invitation to tell me more to to journey with them. Yes. Okay. Tell me what's uh, what's a book that you read? I'd love to read it with, with you. you. Yes. Um, man, what an invitation that is. You know, what I love about what you said there is that. Uh, it's this posture of tell me more when we probably often say to our kids, our parishioners, whatever else it might be, uh, let me tell you more. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> That's usually the words that wow. we use. Uh, and this doesn't mean that with your teenager that you don't have to, there aren't times to step in and be the parent, right? right. But it just changes. I had to have one of those conversations with my daughter not just, not many days ago, right? Mm. Like there's times to be the parent and say, be like, listen, I got to talk to you about this. <laughs> right. But that's usually our posture. Mm. And I think what this is encouraging is like, especially as your kids get older, where they've got to start learning what it means to be a young adult and start learning what it's going to be to be out of your house and have to make decisions. You become a little bit more of a guide. There mm. comes time where you got to, you know, not be a guide, but right. a little bit more of a guide. So like you said, hey, I'm struggling with this. Tell me more. What are you thinking? I can. You can always talk to mom and dad. We will talk this through. Right. Doesn't mean there's not consequences for your actions. Right. It, doesn't mean, right. But it always means that I love you. Yep. And let's talk this through. Let's totally. continue to talk. I think that's gold. If you could have a house, this author says that in, in their house, they hung this motto. They hung this, uh, just says, tell me more mm. just to, to remind them of one of their family models. And so, man, I'd encourage you as your kids, sometimes it's easy to be like, my kids are so little, they don't need any of this. You start yeah. building these practices right. early. Uh, even at 16 months, you really do. You start building these practices where the kids feel safe, they know mom and dad love them, and that's going to bear fruit in continually as they get older. Totally. Well, I even think, too, about like in terms of mentorship, the mentors that have meant the most to me yeah. have been the ones who have modeled this. They've yeah. When I'm, you know, all fired up about an issue or a topic, rather than like correcting me or squelching my fire, they'll they've often said, "Tell me more." Yes, and 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 convictingly, sometimes I've realized, oh, I don't actually have more to say. <laughs> all I have is a soundbite or a headline. Like that can also be convicting when someone that you really care about says, "Hey, tell me more," and you realize, like, oh, that was that was kind of it. That was all I had. That, that was a different kind of instruction as well. Yeah. So yeah. that that posture, not just with our kids, but with our spouses, with our small groups, with our communities, yes. that, that that posture that says. I actually don't just tell me more anecdotally. I actually really do care about what you have to say. I Absolutely. care about what's going on in your heart. And I think that is a really, really important posture for all of us to maintain. Well, uh, like we like to wrap up every show, we're going to land the plane, as you it's often gonna say. Crazy. <laughs> it's going to get crazy. Some interweb insanity, just some nonsense <laughs> that we found online that I guess pastors are using as sermon illustrations. So <laughs> take it or leave it. Coming up next is some interweb insanity here on The Common Good at AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. The show all about diving into the mess and the gray, the stuff that sometimes makes us feel a little tense. And because of that, 
We like to land the plane, wrap up the show with just some insanity that we found online. Also, you can find us on Facebook. If you ever find crazy stories of your own, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us at the Common Good Radio Show on Facebook or at 1160hope.com. And uh, this, I found, has become uh, part of the show that pastors pay attention to yep. because they find sermon illustrations in the insanity that we find. So That's really funny. It's also a public service. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I feel, to our brethren. <laughs> I feel better about this segment already. Why don't you, why don't you kick us off? What kind of insanity do you got? Hawaii. Man shouts guilty to get out of jury duty. He ends up jailed. A man <laughs> called for jury duty in Hawaii shouted, he's guilty, he's guilty, outside a courtroom and ended up spending a night in jail. The judge wasn't amused and ordered the man's arrest on contempt charge and a $10,000 cash bail. Oh, my word. The man spent the night in jail. He was released without being charged or fined. I do not think he was welcomed back for jury duty. <laughs> did he, how did he think that was going to play out, though? I think that he thought they would just let him go, like the crazy guys yelling, he's guilty. Just for, like, disrupting the orderly? I All guess. right, well. Uh, this one's uh, in our beloved Illinois. Man charged with fifth DUI. After falling asleep in Taco Bell drive-through, I uh, I have so many thoughts about this one. Probably none of which I should say. But to fall asleep, I mean, what are yeah, you doing, man? That, that's a that's a dead giveaway. Five though. You can see the people at, at uh, Taco Bell. They're like, uh, we need your help, and they're like, why? Uh, there's a guy sleep in our drive-through. But don't you think after like one or two, you're like, all right, I gotta get some help. Like I, I gotta get my life together. One would hope. One would hope an intervention took place right after this. Apparently not. Florida, here we go. All right. A man from Northeast Florida tried to get on a plane with a rocket-propelled grenade launcher in his luggage. Wow. Authorities said the traveler's checked bag set off the alarms Monday at the airport. Uh, (laughs) And when they opened the bag, there was a replica grenade packed inside with a grenade launcher. Oh, my gosh. They said, thankfully, after checking it, the device was not functioning, not a functioning launcher. I'm going out on a limb. Like, there are some things that are, like, on the edge of what you can bring in. You know, maybe uh, like a little bit too much shampoo or something, <laughs> but the not a grenade the rocket propelled grenade launcher. I think that's going to get you every time. I remember we went on a missions trip to uh, to Mexico when I was in high school, and you know, so this was pre nine eleven. But uh, you know, one of the days was like a shop day, and my my friend bought like a full scale katana, like a sword. <laughs> and, uh, like, put it in her luggage and brought it in her carry-on. And, like, no qualms at all. Like, a full... And it got it home? And got it home just... Like, why she's buying a katana in Mexico is really anyone's guess. But, uh, yeah, no problems at all. We That's could not so believe she cleared security. Funny. All right, so here's a feel-good. This isn't this doesn't really fit the category of interweb insanity, but I just couldn't not share this one out of Arkansas. It says, a teen saves for two years to buy his friend an electric wheelchair. Oh, that's nice. Two high school buds in Norman, Arkansas, uh, reminding the world about the power of friendship and how it can change lives. And it kind of goes on to talk about this teenager, which is super convicting when I think about my teen years. Yes. How selfish and close-minded I was. Like, what what a hero to save for two years in order to buy his friend uh, this really, really important gift. That's a nice one. Yeah. Now I feel bad doing ones where I mock people. <laughs> don't, don't feel bad. It's a good balance. Here's a crazy one out of Georgia. Did you know that you can buy a town in Georgia for the cost of a home in San Francisco? No kidding. If you're thinking about buying property, head south for low prices, it said. Prospective buyers can get almost an entire city in the state of Georgia for the same cost as the average home. Some 37 parcels of property and 40 acres of land are for sale in Tombsboro, Georgia, for 
million. Wow. Property for sale in the town of 700 people would include an abandoned restaurant, a syrup mill, an opera house, (laughs) an old bank, a railroad depot. Calls to the number listed on the sales website went unanswered, but it appears that the town has been on the market since 2012 when it was first listed for $2.5 million. Uh, the other way to think about this is 81% of the homes, think about this, 81% of the homes in San Francisco are worth $1 million or more. Wow. So in, I would love to own my own town. <laughs> what would you do with your own town, I'd though? change the name to Obviously. Frommville. Right. You'd put your face on everything. <laughs> it and... would be awesome. It would be like a bad movie. Like, uh, it's my town. Would anyone visit you, though? I don't care. <laughs> I'm learning so much about you in this one segment. I like I have a general store and this is that. Oh, it would be awesome. Let's move the show to Georgia then. Let's we buy let's this, buy a town. We need this show to do well so we could buy a town, you know what it'd be called? I don't, I don't know. The common good. I don't uh, know. It's brilliant. Brilliant. Good marketing. I, I had a better pun there and I can't, I, I lost it. <laughs> If it comes back to you, let me know. Uh, uh, gotta go Florida again. Man throws Molotov cocktails <laughs> at his own vehicle inside impound lot. An Orange County man is under arrest after allegedly. Okay, so allegedly, allegedly. throwing Molotov cocktails, cocktails plural, <laughs> at his own vehicle inside of an impound lot, according to an arrest report. He came back and started throwing gas cocktail bombs over the fence at his own car, said the, said the lot owner, Darnell Adams, which... Why would he throw at his own car? Uh, maybe insurance money, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's crazy. Does it work that way? Does insurance typically cover like Molotov cocktail I damage? I suppose if they didn't catch you doing it to yeah, your own right. car, that's true. Gosh, that's, that's, cool. a weird, that's a weird story. Let's go up to Wisconsin, where a Brookfield man, Brookfield, it's actually where I got married, Brookfield, Wisconsin. Aww. A Brookfield man is facing charges on suspicion of leaving his house while he was under quarantine for the measles. Okay. So Jeff, Jeffrey Morowski was infected with measles and put people at risk, so he was ordered to be in quarantine last spring. He told deputies he was going crazy staying at home, and so he snuck out. Uh, and you want to know where he, why he snuck out, where he went to? Where? Gold's gym. Really? He wanted to go to the gym. Just had to work out. Had to, had to pump some iron. They said he hid in his wife's car to get past the deputy stationed outside the couple's homes. <laughs> they were enforcing the quarantine order. An off-duty deputy recognized the man walking on the street, then getting into his wife's car. When they were pulled over, Murawski admitted to going to the gym. He said he only stayed a few minutes because he felt so guilty about it. <laughs> really? Yeah, because, you know, it takes multiple minutes for the measles to get around the gym. Not right. just a couple seconds you were in there. Wow. I wish I was that committed to the gym in, in any capacity. This guy's like... Under house arrest and uh, still found a way to pump sometimes, some iron. Some, I would never want the measles, but sometimes doesn't force quarantine sound kind of nice? No. Kind of does. Nope. nope. House arrest counts No, thank good. you. No, thank you. <laughs> Golly, nice. Like you can't go outside. Fine, I got to stay in my house. Nope, nope. I would go crazy. Right. I, we're going to unpack that a little bit later. I'd like to know more about that particular right. event. Okay, so this one's out of India. I don't think we've done one out of India. Nope. The uh, headline is my nightmare. Uh, Opium-addicted parrots terrorized Indian poppy farmers. A group of opium-addicted parrots in the Madhya Pradesh region of India have been terrorizing poppy farmers in recent months, creating a serious problem as the farmers have been experiencing monumental losses to their product during this cultivation season. So it's like a real issue, um, but these parrots, I don't know i don't know how they're becoming opioid-addicted in the first place. I don't even know how a parrot would behave nope. while addicted to opioids of some not, kind. Not well. That just feels <laughs> nightmarish, doesn't it? Yeah. I just... Uh, we need an entire segment, if not an entire day, for the number of things you've called your nightmare. I have a lot of nightmares. Like you just you just claimed opiate addicted parrots to be your nightmare. I didn't I didn't I didn't know that it was, but now that I've seen it in print, 
It is. Uh, all right, I got one more for you. Out of Texas, crows, this is going to be your nightmare. Oh, boy. Crows invade Walmart parking lot as shoppers watch in amazement. Scary footage shows hundreds of crows gathering at a car park in Texas in scenes reminiscent of the horror movie. Video was posted of the crows perched on tops of several cars outside of Walmart as the temperatures dropped into the freezing digits. Tens of thousands of crows congregated and tailgated at a Walmart car park. Car park. They're all over the place. Now that's worthy of a nightmare. <laughs> That is are you it. saying mine wasn't worthy? Are we now comparing the worthiness of yes, nightmares? We are. All right, well, we are. We are. <laughs> At least we learned that we both have some kind of fear of birds. <laughs> if you left learning nothing else, Brian and I are birds. terrified of birds of some kind. Well, this has been great being with you today on The Common Good. We look forward to being with you tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. <laughs>